Hello, you're listening to the Adams and Hayes podcast. The podcast where two blokes who really should know better try to make health and safety a little bit more interesting. So first of all, a quick reminder to all occupied higher risk building owners, managers or principal accounts of persons. They have until the 1st of October to register their buildings with the HSE. The primary and secondary legislation is available if people need to check if their building fulfills the criteria. If you do need assistance, drop us an email, info at aahcs.co.uk or contact your competent safety advisor. So Dan, how are you? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm a bit buzzed. It's been a long week. A lot of deadlines converging all at once. Yeah. A little bit like that good old saying where you wait for a bus for I don't know how long. I actually don't know what the saying is, so I'm going to butcher it. Um, so enjoy this. You wait for a bus for ages, and then they all come at once. Something like that. Cool. That, that'll do. Um, we, we know what you're talking about. Been my, um, yeah, that's been my week. How was yours? Really good. Um, juggling a lot of things. Um, but I've done quite a lot of joy and satisfaction out of this week. Um, yeah, had, um, had deadlines and things to meet, um, and a lot of, uh, departments relying on support, which has been good and quite a lot of stuff outside of work that's been happening too. So all in all, a pretty good week. So I think this week, uh, the podcast, we're going to move things around a little bit. I was going to say, yeah, we've been doing it for a while, haven't we? Um, we've, we've sort of done our, our top three first podcasts and I think we're, we're starting to try and hone it a bit, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. So yeah, I think, um, this week we're going to do a bit more of an extended news edition. Cool. So should we get into it? Yeah. Sounds good. I think you're up first this week. The story that I wanted to focus on is. Not, it's not really been in the news. I actually think you brought it to my attention, which is that the HSE served an improvement notice on a client in August with regards to welfare. So I think one of the things that is worth mentioning before I dive into this is, for me, this looks like the first time the HSE have ever gone after a client for welfare. I don't know how accurate that is because the HSE's records are really difficult to navigate. Yeah, they are. So it, it could have happened before, but what it looks like is given some of the stuff that's been going on in the construction industry over the last 12 months, first of all, there was this Freedom of Information Request Act release that the HSE had to respond to back in... I think it was about February, wasn't it? Yeah, and they've, they've since come out sort of saying, well... It, it was and it was and it this and it this and it and all the rest of it. But for all intents and purposes, they've released they released some internal guidance in in sort of February time, um, off the back of a freedom of information request, which is great, good. Um, you you and I were quite comfortable with that. It sort of didn't it didn't surprise us in terms of what the HSC was saying. It's something that we we're quite used to advising people on, but it sort of sparked this chain of events that we we were kind of expecting that the hsc would say okay we've we've given you a bit more clarity now everybody seems to have been moaning about schedule two for the past however many years um schedule two from cdm 
regulations. Everybody seems to be moaning about it for the last two years. Well, we've now given you some more clarity, so we're going to come and enforce it. Um, and so in August, we, you know, there were a number of enforcement notices put out with relation to welfare and the one in particular that you sort of pointed out the other day to me was that uh, one had been served on a client for mm. not allowing um, and not ensuring that suitable welfare was in place. So, yeah, um, I think it says, for me, it sets a precedent, right? So, and again, we're talking about a situation where because the HSE's records are so difficult to navigate, it's hard to say for sure that the HSE have never, ever, ever, ever in their entire history ever gone after a client for welfare before. But it looks like it could be the first time. And obviously, if you're listening and you think, hang on a minute, Dan's got this completely wrong, please, by all means, uh, drop us an email or, or a comment on social media and let, let us know because I, I find this stuff really interesting and, and love to expand my horizons. Um, I think when I say they've set a precedent, though, they've always had the power to do this. This isn't something that the HSE have not been able to do or maybe have not had the power to do. It's always been the law that they can, you know, the client has some responsibility for welfare on a construction site. But it looks like they're starting to sort of come good on the promise that, well, they didn't make a promise. They didn't make any statements or anything, but it it looks like they're starting to, the chain of events is starting to go in this direction of, we've had this information in January that's kind of added more clarity and now we're in a position where, the HSE are looking at clients as much as they're looking at contractors. And yeah, I think it's 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 something that's important to pick up on because clients will rightly start to feel a little bit of a sense of concern, right? Mm. They're going to sort of start to feel like, well, um, are they going to come after me? Like, am I going to be in trouble? And I think I wanted to pick this up because there's a couple of things that clients can do. And I think this is one of the things that clients often sort of start to struggle with, particularly in the construction industry, because you can be trying to manage a contractor in the right way without overreaching or without crossing um, crossing that client contractor boundary that a lot of people have different names for. Um, and it can be really hard to know, well, if the HSE are coming after contract, the HSE are coming after clients, sorry, mm. what do I do about it as a client? And I think there are there are three things, right? So make sure you've got a contract. That sounds mad, but it's so hard to manage a contractor without a contract. Mm. I think one of the, the things that gets passed around a lot is that we don't want health and safety professionals going around as police officers. I mean, that's f- fair enough, right? Okay, leave the leave the job of the police to the police. But we need some sort of mechanism to manage third parties. It becomes incredibly difficult to manage a third party when they're not, well, when they're a third party. It's really easy to manage your own staff because you can use your own internal processes and your HR processes and all the rest of it to get people to do what is right with regards to risk assessments. But when you start to throw contractors into the mix, it's like, oh, how the the heck do we do this? This contract is a completely other organization that does things in a completely different way to us. And we want them to do it this way and they're not doing it. Well, that's where a contract comes in. Mm. So you agree in a contract and then you build in your mechanisms into the contract in order to manage those risks. And actually, if you've got a contract that you use and you can evidence you use, 
you should be in pretty good stead if the HSE come around and say your contract as welfare is not right. Um, but you need to be able to prove you've used it. Um, there's an interesting thing we throw around all the time, which is Section 40 and 41 of the Health and Safety at Work Act. And we try really hard not to talk about health and safety law to any great extent on the in our content because it can kind of get a little bit boring. But you've got to be able to prove you've done the right things. Mm. You, you've got to have the evidence that's Section 41. And, you've, and you have to prove it to the health and safety executive, which is Section 40, not the other way around. It's not, you know. Lots of people know about that. So your contract is a way of doing that. It's a way of capturing, no, we've instructed them. We've we've asked them to do this. And, you know, we're, we're working through a contractual mechanism to try and get a result here. So that's the first thing. If you're worried about it, if you're worried about this content in terms of, if you're worried about the context in terms of welfare, that's that's something to, to manage, right? Uh, time and resource. We talk about that all the time. The amount of jobs you go on to and you'll ask the question, where's the welfare? And people go, we haven't got money. Okay, mm-hmm. right. Well, again, that's where a contract comes into it because most contracts will have a mechanism in them where a contractor can go back and say, right, we've got this risk that we didn't identify when we started, but it's a risk we need to manage. It's going to cost X amount. Can we have a discussion about it? Most contracts will have that option in them. Clients then need to respond to that. So you either need to turn around and be able to say, we've already paid you for it. This is the evidence. This is where we've paid you for it. Why haven't you used that money accordingly? Or go, all right, fair enough. Right, that's not been included in the contract. We're going to need to release some funds. And this is, again, where we come back and try not too much to talk about the welfare stuff, uh, the legislative stuff, sorry. But welfare is an absolute duty, so it's not the reasonably practical thing where you can go, well, we'll you know, we've got to balance it up. Um, but time and resource super simply is using that contract mechanism to have a discussion around the finances on welfare has your contractor got enough time and enough resource to be able to actually put welfare on site so then i think the third thing that clients need to kind of get their head around is that when you look at the enforcement notices on the hse's website the main thing that they go after when it when they're looking at welfare is toilets and hand washing facilities it's have they got you know to, to be a bit crude, have they got a pot to piss in? That's that's what people are concerned about when they talk about welfare. And actually, when you look at the legislation, again, it is it is separated into two parts in law, which is your welfare uh, as a whole is split into toilets and handwashing facilities, and then everything else is grouped in a separate category. So your toilets and handwashing facilities have defined distances on them through a code of practice, Whereas toilet, whether whereas sort of your showers, your drying rooms, your lockers, your changing facilities, your microwaves, all of that stuff can be packaged into a bit more of a what's readily accessible. Let's balance it out, um, and you still you still can't have it in the next county over. You still you know you can't you can't make somebody travel an hour to get to the toilet, um, and you equally can't make somebody travel an hour to go for their lunch, um, but if somebody's traveling 10, 15 minutes to get to the welfare unit to heat their lunch up, that's probably okay. Um, whereas if somebody's traveling 10, 15 minutes to go to the loo, that isn't. So it's this thing of people need to make clients particularly need to be aware that when we talk about welfare and the requirements that are there, there is a bit of a separation between toilets and everything else. Um, we did say that we weren't going to talk about legislation stuff, but however, if you do want to do a bit of reading on this, 
um, CDM regs 2015 schedule two or G0002 from the HSE that's available on their website and BS6465-1 which is the code of practice for selection of and design of sanitary provision. Um, so that's kind of where all this information has come from. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, tracking it back to a client, it, it's in the regulations, right? Mm. It's in there for that reason, so that the client can effectively not withhold funds or underprice a contract, mm-hmm. um, thus tying the hands of the contractors not being able to provide something. And those will be the main things that the regulator comes and looks at, right? Is as a client, have you tried to cut corners? Mm. Have you tried to cut costs? That that's what they're coming to look at. Um, that they're, they're not they're not expecting you to have a team of people out on site. You know, like when you go to the restaurant and you walk into a restaurant and they've got the has the person checked the toilet in the last thirty yeah. minutes. Yeah. The HSE aren't expecting clients to do that. They aren't expecting clients to be on site checking that the toilets are clean or checking that the microwave works or all the rest of it. Yeah, not nobody expecting the client to put the toilet on site. Contractor's responsibility. Absolutely, they're certainly not expecting a client to organise a high ab to drop a groundhog unit on the corner of on the corner of the site. What they're expecting the client to do is to be able to prove beyond all reasonable doubt that they have not undercut the cost of the contract by pricing out welfare. That's what the that's what the health and safety executive will primarily be looking at. And then obviously they'll go on site and if they see that stuff isn't there, then there's yeah. another conversation to be had of, right, what are you managing this contract through a contract? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, th- this is an important piece um, because we call it welfare. It, it's the welfare of the, the people that are working. Mm-hmm. It's also the health of the people that are working. The, there's all sorts of problems that can arise if you need somebody to cross their legs while they get get the work done um, or they need to travel long distances in order to access something that um, if, if you worked in an office environment, for instance, and yeah. somebody said, just let you know, toilets are out of use for the next six months. Um, if you need the loo, go home. Well, I'll live an hour away. Mm. And um, you, the people that work on your construction site are an hour away. And mm. we, we kind of are, we are talking less fixed construction right now i mean there's literally no reason why fixed construction um shouldn't have schedule two fully fully in play we're talking about things that are slightly more difficult to um to do and program manage and project manage yeah program management and project management that's a big topic there and that that is at the heart of the CDM regs. I mean, I think I often say to you when we talk about it, if you look at an NEC contract, so new engineering contract, three or four, um, which are, like I say, acronized, don't know if that's a word, as NEC three and NEC four, and then you read them in conjunction with the CDM regs, there are loads of similarities. I would suggest that they were written in conjunction or, or sort of at least referenced in each other in terms of the way that they've they've been produced because program management and managing the program and the project itself it is how you get welfare on site so big projects static sites i think will often will will actually face a lot of the challenges that yeah more transitory more dynamic sites will face because actually it's if your program's not planned well mm. 
you're not going to be able to find somewhere to put the welfare on. Now, that is mostly the role of a principal contractor. But again, if a client, and this is where the time comes into it, is going, well, I wanted that yesterday. Why is it not being yet built yesterday? Mm. That's another thing the HSE going to come and look at when client when they, they're looking at clients of, are you actually giving your contractor time to build this safely, healthily, and without risk to welfare? Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think they've I'm going to have to call her out. The absolutely wonderful Liz Bennett explained mm. to me that CDM is a project management framework. People see mm. it as a set of health and safety legislation, but it's a project mm. management framework. The whole contract piece that you, you spoke about um, in managing your contractors through the use of a contract is because we're not, or the client isn't an enforcement body. Yeah, so they, exactly. they have no power over the contractor other than moving everything out of criminal law, putting it into civil law, then holding them to account mm-hmm. using the contract. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, once those kind of two key things were explained to me by the absolutely wonderful Liz Bennett, everything became a lot clearer on what mm. needed to be done and why it was done in that manner. As CDM advisors, we spend a lot of time talking about toilets. Um, we do, or at least we have done over the last, or, or at least we have done over the course of the last year, due to OG zero 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 two landing, sort of, sort of Christmas, Christmassy time last year. Um, so it's something we spent a lot of time on. But there are huge, huge parts of CDM that, because our time is so <laughs> consumed by going. This is how many toilets you need on the site, and this is da da da, and you know these are the options, and you don't get to talk about design. And actually, that's one thing that a lot of people are asking about, particularly in the wake of things like Grenfell, and you mentioned the Building Safety Act and the requirements yeah. that are now coming into force at the end of October. Those, those, those are the topics that people are asking about. Um, and sometimes it just it boggles me why are we still why are we still having conversations about toilets i i get it i get that they're, they're probably going to cost some money and i get that it might be a bit of a faff to get it on site and it this and this and this but like we have got bigger fish to fry than having these continually talking about something that is a basic human right and let's just get on with it just just put the toilet there somebody's gonna have to pay with pay for it fine I mean, we, we have literally had this conversation to death, haven't we? Yeah. On what is the, the actual issue here? What is the thing that needs to, the hurdle that needs to be overcome in order for this to work? Mm. And actually, the more we kind of prod and poked, poked around, um, the more it was down to, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of effort, and it's a lot of money in mm. order to provide something that other people don't see as being an issue. Mm-hmm. And the reason they tend not to see it being an issue is because they're that far removed away from the work site that it's not them who mm. may have an issue with incontinence down the line. It's not them who need um, access to that facility as soon as they need access to that facility. Mm-hmm. So we, we a lot of the digging around that we did, that's they're the project mm. management challenges that, came out of it anyway i mean we we could talk about cdm all day uh, and frequently do but at the risk of doing that um what's the headline for your story the headline for my story 
So, um, the HSC have released a information uh, regarding a fall from height, and it's something that I wanted to cover on the podcast. So I'll kind of go through the scenario, then we can have a discussion afterwards. So, CK Steelwork and Cladding Limited uh, were undertaking work on the roof of a warehouse-style building, just to kind of give you a bit of context. The roof was known to be fragile, but at the time of the incident, safety nets were being erected below the work area, although that safety netting work had not been completed. So despite that, Mr. Craig Dixon, who was 39 years of age, was taken onto the roof by a supervisor to assess the job. While crossing an area of the roof that was not protected by the nets that were being erected underneath, he stepped onto a weak skylight which gave way, and he fell headfirst around 10 metres onto the concrete floor below. So, for the listeners, bit of a trigger warning, you might want to mute us for the next 10 seconds. Ready? Okay. Mr. Dixon shattered most of the bones in his face, his hands and his wrists. He lost four teeth and severely damaged his knee. He spent six weeks in intensive care and was confined to a wheelchair for five months. Since the accident, he's endured constant pain and 17 months later, he's still unable to work. So here's the impact in Craig's own words. The accident broke every bone in my face and knocked out my four front teeth. This has made me have zero confidence and major anxiety, which I now have to see a psychiatrist for every week. My nose was badly broken, which has left me with no sense of smell and I have difficulty breathing through it. Before my accident, I was very physically and mentally active person and attended the gym on a daily basis and I was a keen fell walker and I liked to socialise. I'm now left in severe pain and now have anxiety and I'm always anxious and find it hard, if not impossible, to do anything that I like. I did before the accident. So the company pleaded guilty to breaching 4-1 of the working at height regs. This refers to the employer ensuring that working at height is properly planned, appropriately supervised and carried out in a manner which is as so far as reasonably practicably safe. They were fined £16,000 in order to pay £4,462 in costs. Mm-hmm. So, that's the scenario. What I'd like to talk about is supervision. That was clearly an issue if the supervisor thought that it would have been advisable to go and effectively do that survey of the roof before the nets were erected it clearly had been risk assessed because somebody turned around and said you're going to need safety nets because that's fragile roof why would you choose netting or why would you not wait for the nets to be erected before going up there i'm wondering if time kind of played a factor in this but being a massive advocate for safe working at height fall prevention is better than fall arrest how do you stop somebody from falling that is much better than how do we stop them from hitting the floor once they've fallen so i think the first question that a lot of people will ask back to that is 
presumably they were doing the work on the roof to make it less fragile. We don't know. We don't know. We don't okay. know what the work was for. Right. Well, that's... that's it could have been cleaning the... of the roof, for all we know. Yeah, that's what we were saying in the previous previous section is a lot mm. of the information that we do get from the HSE is not actually that helpful. Um, <laughs> okay. So I think... So if it's cleaning the roof... Um, there, I there's still got... work and cladding company. Yeah. It doesn't really lend itself to cleaning, does it? So maybe they were doing some strengthening work. But if you're going to strengthen a roof, you start from the inside in a warehouse, right? You don't start on the outside, strengthen a roof. No, you wouldn't. Mm. Mm. Depends on, <laughs> depends, Dep- on how depend, it depends what the current roof's attached to, right? So you might need to get up there and have a look at, at, at how the current cladding mm. and sheeting is attached to the frame of the building in order to make a, a plan on... This is definitely turned into a CDM week. It really is, isn't it? I'm um, trying to keep it working at height. Working at height. Yeah, sorry. The question I was going to ask is if you're so we're saying for prevention is better than for cure basically well for arrest yeah um, yeah definitely but how do you assess work to improve the prevention without working a height for a fragile roof you'd look at other methods of getting up there to do what you needed to do hmm. so maybe you look at using a mute hmm. maybe a, a boom cherry picker You've kind of got other means of getting up there to have a look at what needs to be done, to have a look at structural weaknesses. Or a drone. You're potentially a drone. And I think this is this is something that... It, I, I know that there, there are a lot of restrictions around using drones, but actually they, they completely mitigate the work at height in the first place. Of course. I mean, hierarchy help. controls don't work at yeah. height if you don't have to. They're not the most helpful all the time Mm. Um, and i think they do get a bit of a like i say drone and in a like my toes curl up because my image of drone is not actually something professional but maybe that's just something i need to deal with Um, yeah possibly i've seen some drones being used in fascinating ways yeah Yeah. and they are really interesting um and i've also seen some examples of of them being used in in fascinating ways but I, i don't know i wonder if other people sort of when people think about trying to eliminate work at height, they're still, well, actually eliminating work at height is how can you get the same output without putting the person at height? Yeah. Even if they're on, even if they're on a cherry picker, they're still at height. You have a, they they are, but you're much safer in a cherry picker than you are. Oh yeah, absolutely. Walking on a fragile roof. But if we're talking about hierarchy of controls, you haven't eliminated the risk. And principles of prevention. And principles of prevention. Yeah. yeah, you haven't you haven't eliminated the risk. You've substituted it or made well, it substituted for a lesser risk, risk, which again is yeah. part of both hierarchy um, controls and principles of prevention. Yeah. Well, no, for for me, I mean, somebody's risk assessed it. Somebody has said, you know what, there's fragile roof. You're mm. going to need netting underneath, so that if mm-hmm. you do fall, there's something there to catch you. Mm-hmm. Massive oversight that um, those weren't rigged when they went up there. The supervisor definitely should have known better. Mm. Unfortunately for Mr. Dixon, this did not go well. Mm. Um, so but- I always find it, the, the one thing I find, <clears throat> I sometimes find difficult to get my head around. Skylights are 
notorious for being fragile. Yeah. I mean, they're literally designed to let light into a building and nine times out of ten, correct me if I'm wrong, they're designed out of plastic. Yeah, they are. Yeah. So I've, I find it difficult that the supervisor would take somebody up to a roof and go, oh, yeah, there's skylights here, that's fine. Yeah. I'm, the only thing I can think of, and again, it would be really good if the HSC would release more information. Hmm. Um, may, maybe the entire roof was covered in a layer of moss or, or something that would block the view of that skylight. Hmm. Hmm. That's a good shout, actually, yeah. However, I, I can't get away from why would you need to go onto a fragile roof without the netting yeah without anything either the netting to catch you but again i'm going to go back to you should be stopping that person from falling so Mm. um erecting handrails around the edge and then clipping on yeah so what do we know about the incident We've, we've just you what I've covered. That is, that is all the hits seriously. Uh, let me try again. Just what I've covered. That is all the HC released on it. Mm-hmm. Um, they, as we know, the HSC like to go. It's this regulation that's been broken or breached. This is how much people were fined. This is what happened to the individual. Well, mm-hmm. actually, we need a bit more meat on the bones on yeah, what, I th- the investigation. Yeah, because then you end up doing what we've done for the last 10 minutes, which is speculate and yeah. sort of ask questions that some people will, like, I know that, you know, you might be listening and, and hearing us ask these questions and go, oh, not again, not another safety person asking stupid questions. But it can be really hard not to do that because we get so little information out of the regulator when things go wrong. Hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering if that's kind of defense mechanism from the regulator. Don't know. The less we publish, the less people can pick holes in. Yeah, maybe. But they've, they've successfully convicted, right? Yeah. So does it matter if somebody picks holes in it afterwards? The jury decided. On the balance of the evidence provided to them. Exactly. Not on the balance. No, no. Beyond all reasonable doubt. Yeah, beyond all reasonable doubt. It's criminal law, isn't it? Yeah. So I think we we probably will tie it off then. Um, I think one thing we should say is uh, to you at home is we we're still shaping we're still very much shaping this podcast. I think it's mad that we're only on podcast four because I feel like well it's 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 episode three but we've done four because we did the pilot as well and we're still shaping it and it's really odd to me to say oh we've we're only on that doing that fourth recording um because it feels like we've been doing it for ages yeah well we did do a fifth if you remember but we decided not to air it yeah that was just me talking rubbish for half an hour nobody needs to hear that (laughs) but yeah it does feel like we've been doing this for a long time already uh but Mm. yeah we we need people's feedback we need people to say this is working this isn't working this is what we want more of this is what we want less of yeah definitely and a key way to do that is literally just jump on your podcast platform. If you're on Spotify, you can give us five, five stars if you feel like we deserve it or less. Um, and, or if you're on Apple Music or iTunes, what I don't know what they're calling themselves now, Apple yeah, Podcasts, Apple, Podcasts. Uh, yeah, Podcasts, just Podcasts. It, if you're on the podcast app, 
please give us like proper feedback on there, even if you're only giving us we don't care about the stars at this point. Um, we probably won't ever really care about the stars. What we really do care about is that feedback and being able to shape this in a way that really resounds with you. So yeah, just jump on there, whatever platform you're on, or you can email us as well or contact us on social media, which uh, Anthony's doing a great job of running at the moment. Yeah, so our handle is Adams underscore Hayes and our email is podcast at aahcs.co.uk. Yeah, so we'll we'll see how we go, but genuinely, I just wanted to, well, we both just wanted to spend a bit more time just sort of asking for your feedback at the end in a more authentic way than just going, give us a rate and a review on these podcasts, because uh, that can kind of become a bit of a, a script. Uh, and it actually is a script. We have it written down. We read the same thing out every week because it just it keeps us on track. But we ask for that because it means a lot to us and it helps us develop this podcast. Yeah, um, And definitely. we thank, a big thank to all. I think we've got 79 regular listeners. So a big thanks to each and every one of you for listening and for what you've been able to give us so far in terms of shaping this. Yeah, well said, well said. So before we close this episode, I would like to take a minute to thank colleagues at my current workplace. I've enjoyed the past 18 months and I hope the people within the company continue to challenge status quo. I've had pleasure to work with some amazing, talented and passionate people, and I'm sure they will all go on to achieve incredible things. I'd also like to give a massive thank you to Dan. We've been working together for over a year and in that time we've achieved more than anyone expected. Dan, Keep smashing it, and hand on heart, you have continuously impressed and amazed me. Oh, thanks, mate. So thank that's you. so kind. Oh. oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. So, for now, thank you and goodbye. Until next time. Stay safe, stay well, and stay healthy. <laughs>